0: Hello there and welcome to the Paradox Podcast. I'd like to say a special thank you to our online donors who give at ParadoxGiving.com. You make this podcast possible. Today we are looking at Second Chronicles 34 and this episode is entitled Josiah's Scroll. Over the past two months, we have been working our way through First and Second Chronicles. These books are one of two historical accounts in the Bible, and they tell the story of the monarchy in Judah over a period of 450 years. The Chronicles story begins with a man named David, and follows the exploits of his sons and descendants as they reign on the throne in Jerusalem. The chapter we are discussing today is the story of King Josiah. Josiah reigned over Judah for about 30 years in the late 7th century BCE. His time on the throne came to an end sometime around 610 BCE, or about 400 years after the reign of David began. In addition to these dates, there is one other date that we need to pay close attention to when we read the Chronicles. That date is somewhere around 350 BCE. This year, or around that year, is when the author of Chronicles wrote the story that we are about to read. As we listen to the story of King Josiah, we must remember that these words about his life are written about 250 years after his death. The last thing that we need to acknowledge before we get to the text is that in 350 BCE, the author of Chronicles, wrote the story of King Josiah with a very specific and a very clear agenda. The author of Chronicles wants every reader of his work to believe that the temple in Jerusalem should be prioritized over all other forms of religious expression. He believes that this elevation of religion will forge a stronger national identity in his day, which is sometime around 350 BCE. Because in that day, the pressing theological question that the people of Judah were asking was this, are we still the people of God? The answer, as told through the history of the Chronicles, is, of course we are still the people of God, because we have the temple. The thesis of Chronicles is that Judah's religious identity is the temple in Jerusalem. And if Judah wants to become a stronger and more unified nation, then Judah, according to the author of Chronicles, must prioritize the centrality of the religious establishment in Jerusalem immediately. Whenever we open the book of Chronicles, we need to remember this thesis from the author. Now, there is nothing wrong with a biblical author writing with an agenda in their mind. But there is something wrong when we read the books of the Bible today and never pause to ask ourselves the question, what is the author's central point in this written work? So this story of Josiah is part of a larger framework meant to convince the reader that the temple is a religious organization ordained and championed by the creator of the universe. Let's keep that in mind as we experience the story of Josiah as told by the author of Chronicles we read in the 34th chapter of Second Chronicles that Josiah was eight years old when he began to reign. Okay, hold up. An eight-year-old king as a nation's head of state? Really? Can you imagine if we had an eight-year-old in the White House today? I mean, that eight-year-old president would throw a temper tantrum if they were democratically voted out by the American people. I assume that this child would pout, and declare that the whole election that this child just lost is completely rigged and then refused to accept his own defeat. I mean, having an eight-year-old in the White House would be a disaster, wouldn't it? Returning to our story. Now, the reason that Josiah becomes king when he is eight years old is because his father, Ammon, became king at the age of 22. Two years into Ammon's reign assassins brutally murdered Ammon at the age of 24. However, royal guards quickly squashed this mutiny and placed the crown on Josiah's head. Now, the people of Judah are not completely insane. Most likely, Josiah had several advisors and government officials that ran the country for him until he reached the age of 16, which we will read about in a moment. The text continues, Josiah reigned for 31 years in Jerusalem. He did what was right in the sight of the Lord and walked in the ways of his ancestor David. Josiah did not turn aside to the right or to the left. To my friends who are listening to this podcast today, when the author of Chronicles tells us that Josiah did what was right, we need to remember the thesis statement of Chronicles. A quick reminder, the thesis is Judah's religious identity is the temple in Jerusalem. Because the author declares that Josiah is a good king, we can make a well-educated guess that Josiah is going to prioritize the authority and religious praxis of the temple in Jerusalem. If Josiah didn't do these things during his reign, then the author of Chronicles would not refer to him as a righteous king because that would not support his thesis. In fact, throughout all of Chronicles, the author passes judgment on each and every king and queen in Judah's history based on their willingness to acknowledge and enable the temple's authority. So there is very little surprise when we continue reading these words. For in the eighth year of his reign, while Josiah was still a boy, he began to seek the god of his ancestor David, Four years later, in the twelfth year of his reign, Josiah began to purge Judah and Jerusalem of the high places, the sacred poles, and the carved and the cast images. So here we have a 20-year-old king leading a massive religious reform that basically outlaws all religions in his land, except for one religion, which is Josiah's religion, which is centered around the temple in Jerusalem. Verses 4 and 5 say more about Josiah's reform. We read, In his presence they pulled down the altars of the Baals. He demolished the incense altars and stood above them. Josiah broke down the sacred poles and the carved and the cast images. Josiah made dust of them and scattered it over the graves of those who had sacrificed them. Josiah also burned the bones of the priests on their altars and purged Judah and Jerusalem. Jerusalem. Yeesh. In this verse, the religious reform takes a rather gruesome term, doesn't it? The text is unclear as to whether these bones are the priests who are already dead or they are the bones from priests who are executed by Josiah. Either way, bones being burned is a statement from a tyrant. Josiah publicly announces an intolerance for other religions, with fire fueled from the bones. Of religious minorities while we are frightened by the actions of this unchecked king the author of chronicles appreciates and celebrates josiah's willingness to burn these bones because the author of chronicles believes that this gruesome statement is necessary to establish the authority of the temple six years later josiah is in the 18th year of his reign And is 26 years old. To continue his religious reform, he gathers three messengers in his royal court, Shaphan, Joah, and Maaseah. He then gives them a pile of cash. The king tells his messengers to take this pile of cash to the priests at the temple and spend it all on the restoration and repair of the religious structure and the religious establishment. Obviously, The author of Chronicles loves that Josiah pays an enormous sum of money to the religious officials. So the three messengers go up to the temple. They look around and they ask, does anyone here want a giant pile of cash? Hilkiah, the high priest, begins to jump up and down and says, I do, I do. I want a giant pile of cash. And with that money in hand, Hilkiah and the people of Judah completely renovate the temple. We read about all of Judah coming together to work on their sacred structure. The text tells us about the happiness and joy that all of the workers experienced as they labored under the guidance and leadership of the priests of the temple. While they were cleaning out the temple, the religious leaders discover a scroll in a back room. The author of Chronicles describes this scroll as the book of the law of the Lord given through Moses. Scholars are in near unanimous agreement as to what this scroll most likely is. Dr. Bernard Levinson from the University of Minnesota writes that scholars, both traditional and critical, have long identified the scroll of the Torah discovered in Josiah's temple as the book of Deuteronomy. Now, Deuteronomy is the fifth book of the Bible today, which means that this discovery of the scroll directly impacts the shape of our scriptures that we interact with now. Immediately, Shaphon returns to the court of King Josiah and tells Josiah of the stunning discovery of the book of Deuteronomy. Shaphon unfurls the scroll and begins to read passages of scripture that King Josiah has never heard before. Now, Deuteronomy is a lengthy book, so I've picked a few selections from this book. And I think these selections will help us imagine what Josiah felt hearing these words for the first time. In chapter 12 of Deuteronomy, we read, Take care that you do not offer your burnt offerings at any place you happen to see. Upon hearing these words, I imagine Josiah's stomach turning tightly into knots. He probably thought, oh, my people have not been following this rule. Josiah's people were offering sacrifices to God throughout the land. But here, Deuteronomy says you can only offer sacrifices at the temple. The second passage is from Deuteronomy 17. We read, When the king has taken the throne of his kingdom, he shall have a copy of this law written for him in the presence of the Levitical priests. This law shall remain with him, and he shall read in it all the days of his life, so that the king may learn to fear the Lord his God, diligently observing all the words of this law and of these statutes. Now, I picture Josiah hearing this passage and feeling a wave of panic in his soul. As the king, he has not been reading Deuteronomy all the days of his life because, you know, he just found out that Deuteronomy exists. (laughs) He probably thought to himself, "Uh uh-oh, I haven't been reading Deuteronomy every day. The third selection is from Deuteronomy 23. We read, You shall have a designated area outside the camp to which you shall go. With your utensils you shall have a trowel. When you relieve yourself outside, you shall dig a hole with it and then cover up your excrement. Now this one really flusters Josiah. And he thinks, "Uh uh-oh, I have been using the royal latrine. And the royal latrine is a sin. From there, we go to Deuteronomy 28. If you do not diligently observe all the words of this law that are written in this book, fearing this glorious and awesome name, the Lord your God, then the Lord will overwhelm both you and your offspring with severe and lasting afflictions and grievous and lasting maladies. Now, Josiah squirms as he considers these lasting maladies. He thinks to himself, "Uh uh-oh, we haven't been following the words and law in this book. Deuteronomy 31 reads, Moses commanded them every seventh year in the scheduled year of remission during the festival of the booths, when all Israel comes to appear before the Lord your God at the place that he will choose, you shall read this law before all Israel in their hearing. Josiah probably hung his head in shame. He wondered aloud, "Uh uh-oh, we haven't been reading this book out loud every seven years. A little later in that same chapter, Shaphan reads, Moses commanded them, Take this book of the law and put it beside the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God. Let it remain there as a witness against you. Josiah groans. "Uh Uh-oh, he thinks. This book has not been kept next to the Ark. This book has been in a basement since, well, who knows when? So Shaphan reads the entire book of Deuteronomy to King Josiah, and the words of Deuteronomy greatly distress the king. Josiah tears his clothes as a sign of protest against himself and against his own people. Josiah then summons the high priest Hilkiah as well as three other messengers and commands them to seek out a prophet from God who can help them in their plight. The five messengers then rush to the prophetess Huldah. The messengers quickly explained to Huldah that they found a scroll in a basement, and this scroll contained all kinds of laws that the people of Judah continually broke for generations. They asked Huldah, the prophetess, what can we do to seek forgiveness from God for breaking all of the rules that are in this scroll? Now Huldah sits silently. The messengers desperately want her to speak, but they know it's a bad idea to make a prophetess angry. Finally, Huldah speaks, and she has terrible news. We read Huldah's words in Second Chronicles 34. She says, Thus says the Lord, I will indeed bring disaster upon this place and upon its inhabitants, all the curses that are written in the book that was read before the king of Judah. Because, she continues, they have forsaken me and have made offerings to other gods so that they have provoked me to anger with all the works of their hands. My wrath will be poured out on this place and this wrath will not be quenched. Huldah goes on to tell the messengers that God will spare Josiah of this wrath in his lifetime because Josiah expressed sincere remorse for his nation's inability to keep the law. The five messengers then sadly took Huldah's message back to King Josiah. For the next 12 years, Josiah continues to enforce massive religious reform that will come to define his time and power. Josiah reinstitutes the celebration of the Passover, he hunts down and destroys any and all religious structures that are not endorsed by the priests of the temple. And Josiah devoutly lives by the standards and laws in the book of Deuteronomy. At the age of 39, Josiah is killed on the battlefield. His death is recorded in 2 Chronicles 35, which is the second to last chapter in Chronicles. Chapter 36 covers the reign of four kings, and three of them are Josiah's sons, and one is Josiah's grandson. All four kings are deemed to be evil by the author of Chronicles. And after their fourth evil king in a row, the author of Chronicles tells us that God no longer has a choice about what God has to do. According to the text, God sends an invading army from Babylon to destroy Judah. The Babylonians, then, rout the people of Judah in 586 BCE, or about 25 years after the reign of Josiah, came to an end. The majority of the survivors in Judah are then dragged back across the desert and forced to live in exile for the next 47 years. Now the exile is a cataclysmic level of national suffering, the likes of which I have never known in my lifetime. Here's how the author of Chronicles attempts to describe this indescribable tragedy. He writes The Lord, the God of Judah's ancestors, sent persistently to Judah messengers because God had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But the people of Judah kept mocking the messengers of God, despising God's words and scoffing at God's prophets until the wrath of the Lord against God's people became so great that there was no remedy. Therefore, God brought up against them the king of Babylon who killed their youths with the sword in the house of their sanctuary and had no compassion on young man or young woman, the aged or the feeble. God gave all of the people of Judah into Babylon's hand. This story is emotionally devastating. This exile is the most influential and tragic event in all of the Hebrew Bible. Whenever we suffer in life, human beings always ask the question, why? Why is this happening to me? Now, humans ask this question because there are two types of suffering. The first type is suffering that is preventable. If we can understand why we suffered, then maybe we can make different choices in the future that would prevent us from experiencing the same suffering again. The second type of suffering, though, is suffering that is unpreventable. Unpreventable suffering is when something happens to us that we cannot control. We were in the wrong place at the wrong time or random chance chose us as the victim of suffering that chance doled out. The reason we ask the question why is to help us determine whether or not the suffering we encountered could have been preventable or not. Now, the author of Chronicles believes that the suffering of the exile from Babylon was entirely preventable. He believes that if Judah had prioritized worship at the temple, then the exile would have never occurred. So when people ask the question, why did God allow the exile to happen? We look back through the pages and see that the prophetess, Huldah, already clearly explained why this suffering had to occur. The prophetess informs us that God's only option left in God's relationship with Judah was one of violence. The reason for this is a sequence of seven different events in this story. So let's recap all seven events right now. Some time ago, the first event occurs, which is the book of Deuteronomy is written. Now assuming Moses wrote the book of Deuteronomy, that would place event number one at sometime around the year 1300 BCE. After the book of Deuteronomy is written, second event occurs, which is Deuteronomy is lost. We do not know how or when these writings ended up being misplaced, but the text records that they are later found in a storage room in the temple. For fun, let's assume that Deuteronomy is lost 200 years after it is written, so sometime around the year 1100 BCE. After Deuteronomy is lost, Deuteronomy then is unintentionally disobeyed by the children of Israel. This is the third event and this third event makes sense because a lot of the rules in Deuteronomy are not intuitive. For example, we read a law earlier that Deuteronomy needs to be read every seven years. Well, that's a difficult law to keep unless you possess a copy of Deuteronomy that says, make sure that you read Deuteronomy every seven years. So the children of Israel are breaking the law of God, but none of them know that they are actually breaking the law of God because they don't have a copy of the law of God. This leads to step four, which is the wrath of God grows exponentially with each passing generation as they fail to follow the rules that they do not know exist. What I find interesting about this step in the story is that God, who many profess to be all-powerful, chooses not to bring the scroll forward and place it in the king's hand. Instead, God apparently stews in the corner of heaven as God wonders why no one will take the time to find the rules that they are constantly breaking, which is pushing God's wrath toward the point of no return. Approximately 500 years later, during the reign of King Josiah, we encounter our fifth event. Deuteronomy is found. Upon hearing Deuteronomy, Josiah realizes that the people of Judah are a long way off from upholding the law of God that is outlined in Deuteronomy. He tears his clothes in protest and immediately reaches out to the prophetess, Hulda. Hulda, he inquires, can we do anything to right the massive wrong and earn God's favor for not following the law in Deuteronomy? And Huldah says, no. This is the sixth event in our story. She informs Josiah that God's wrath from the past 500 years is no longer reconcilable. She prophesies to Josiah that God will send a violent conquest to Jerusalem in the very near future to teach Judah a lesson. This lesson is that Judah should have known better and kept the laws that they did not know existed. 25 years later, God's anger comes into tangible reality and the conquest and the exile of Judah is an act of God. The seventh and final event in the story of Josiah's scroll. This is the theology and the testimony of the actions and character of God as recorded in the book of Chronicles. Take a moment And consider Josiah and Huldah's story from a bird's eye perspective with these seven events. I think all of us need to sit with this story and consider the actions of God. When I sit with this story for some time at this perspective, there is a question that comes to the forefront of my mind. In this story, is God actually good? Now, you may have a strong reaction to this question. You may feel with deep conviction that God is very good in this story. Or you may feel that God is very bad. But before we answer the question of whether or not God is good in this story, I want to tell you a hypothetical story to help us answer this question. Let's project this hypothetical story onto a real relationship from today's world. A little over 10 years ago, I married my best friend Kimmy. And before we go any further, I want to remind you that what I'm about to tell you is a hypothetical story projected onto a very real marriage. The marriage is real, but the story I'm about to tell you is not. We are going to imagine 2 Chronicles 34, in the context of my marriage. Imagine with me that Kimmy loves getting flowers from me. Flowers are so important to her that on our wedding day, she decides to write me a letter expressing how much flowers will be critical to the health of our marriage going forward. So she writes on a card, Dearest Craig, I love getting flowers from you. Please bring me flowers every day of our marriage. If you don't do this, then I will be forced to murder your walking partner, Bella, who is our dog. Love, Kimmy. XO, exo, exo, XO. She writes this on a card, and right before our wedding, Kimmy seeks me out and hands me that card in a sealed envelope. She tells me, hey, Craig, don't forget to read this card. It's really important to me. I promise my soon-to-be bride that I will read it. Then the wedding happens, we dine with friends and family at the reception, we say goodbye to everyone, Kimmy and I then go to a hotel room, and poof, somehow, I forget all about the card with these important instructions. Kimmy's card stays in the jacket pocket of my wedding suit, unopened and unread. The next day, our first day as a married couple, comes and goes, but there are no flowers. Kimmy is disappointed, and I am clueless. Rather than confronting me and asking me if I read the card, Kimmy thinks to herself, well, Craig should know that this card is important to me, so he needs to remember this card on his own. Craig needs to find that card for himself, and then Craig needs to bring me flowers every day. I will not tell him about this card and remind him that he needs to read it. The second day of marriage passes, and there are no flowers. The third day passes, no flowers. Our first anniversary arrives, and I've managed to not bring her flowers for 365 days in a row. Our second anniversary, still no flowers. Time flies by our third, fourth, and fifth anniversary, and still there are no flowers for five years straight in our marriage. With each passing anniversary, Kimmy becomes more frustrated, more disappointed, and more convinced that I need to pay the price for not following her basic instructions. I take Kimmy to some nice dinners on our sixth and seventh anniversaries, but all Kimmy can think about is, I don't want dinner, Craig. I want flowers. Our eight year anniversary is spent at the spaghetti factory with our two kids. Kimmy tells Maya and Bodie that daddy is going to bring flowers for the first time on our eighth anniversary. She meets me at the restaurant and her heart drops when she realizes that I arrived there without any flowers. Our ninth anniversary is spent over FaceTime. So Kimmy assumes I will have flowers delivered to the house. She sits on the porch, eagerly waiting for her flowers to show up. But the sun sets, and she goes to bed flowerless and disappointed. Our 10th anniversary falls on a Saturday, so Kimmy casually suggests that I should wear my wedding suit when I preach, and I happily oblige. As I am putting on the suit... For the first time in 10 years, I notice that there is something bulky in my jacket pocket. I reach in and discover an aged card in a sealed envelope. I panic as memories come rushing back to me about this card. Kimmy told me to open this and I had completely forgot about it. With hands trembling, I fear the worst. And the worst is what's in the card. I read, dearest Craig, I love getting flowers from you. Please bring me flowers every day or I will murder your walking partner, Bella, who is our dog. I immediately raced downstairs to find Kimmy. With tears in my eyes, I say, Kimmy, I'm so sorry. I just found the card, and I now know that you want flowers. I had no idea. I love you so much, and I will order flowers every day for you right now, every day. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry, Kimmy. And I didn't know. And, and please, Kimmy, please, 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 just don't murder Bella. But Kimmy looks at me coldly. She stands up as tall as she can, and she almost yells, it's too late, Craig. You should have known better. My wrath is past the point of no return. Kimmy then pulls out a knife from the kitchen drawer. She walks over to Bella and she yells, You must learn a lesson, Craig. I want flowers. And then Kimmy stabs Bella. And Bella is no more. Now I have a question for you. That I would like to ask you at the end of this hypothetical story. In this story, is Kimmy a good spouse? Well, the answer is absolutely not. Hypothetical Kimmy acts immorally in this story. Debate over. Now, could hypothetical Craig have been a little bit of a better husband and at least brought her flowers once over the past 10 years? Of course. But that doesn't justify the murder of a dog. Kimmy is immoral in this story and there is no debate about that fact. With that fact in mind, let's return to our pressing question. In the story of Josiah and Huldah, is God actually good? Well, the answer is absolutely not. In this story, God's actions are those of a tyrant. God is petty. God is cruel. God is vengeful. And God is not worthy of any form of worship, respect, and honor. In this story, God is immoral. Which is why this story is a difficult story. Whether we like it or not, this story takes Christians in America today and drops them off at a crossroads. In regards to this story, Christians must decide between the following two options. The first option is that the Bible is always true. And the second option is God is always moral. Now Christians don't like this. But the fact is that these two ideas are mutually exclusive. This mutual exclusion becomes transparent when we carefully read the story of Josiah and Hulda. now this is just one of many stories in the Bible that continually lead us back to the crossroads and asks us the question do you believe that the Bible is always true or do you believe that God is always moral and when presented with that question what is truly stunning about Christians in America today is that when Christians arrive at these crossroads the overwhelming majority of Christians choose to uphold the accuracy of the Bible at the expense of the morality of God. Now, if we pause and think about this for a moment, this decision to go down the road of biblical accuracy instead of the moral God, we can learn that Christians across America today would rather have an accurate Bible and an immoral God than an inaccurate Bible and a moral God. This is stunning to me. And the reason I believe that Christians feel this way is because Christians are more concerned about being right than we are about being good. If you do not believe me, then think about how the majority of the church acts toward queer people. When Christians outside of Paradox find out that we are a fully affirming, fully officiating of same-sex marriages and fully ordaining of queer people kind of church, the number one follow-up question we receive is, uh, do you guys read the Bible? To which we reply, yes. Yes, we read the Bible. Here at Paradox, we read the Bible every week when we get together. At which their follow-up question is something along the lines of, Well, how can you support same-sex marriage if same-sex marriage will not be allowed in heaven? Now, do you understand what is happening when people ask this question to us? This question is an accusation. Christians that ask us this question are accusing us of being more accepting, more inclusive, and more loving than God. How on earth can someone be led to the insane idea that someone like me or other members of this church are more accepting, inclusive, and loving than God? The only logical answer to that question is that Christians are more concerned about being right than we are about being good. And this prioritization leads Christians to acting much more like God in the story of Josiah and Holden. Namely, Christians become petty, vengeful, angry, and suspicious of other human beings outside of Christianity, which is why we need to rearrange what is important to us. Christians need to be more concerned about being good than we are about being right. In our society today, we have a terrible definition of faith. Most people think that faith is the ability to believe in ridiculous things. By that definition, flat earthers are people of great faith. And anytime that flat earthers are portrayed as great people of faith, then you and I know that our definition of what makes them great is in trouble. (laughs) We live in a round world. If you don't believe me, then don't use the GPS on your phone because GPS needs the world to be round in order to work. Flat earthers are not people of great faith. We need a different definition of faith that does not allow flat earthers to be people of great faith. For me, faith is what we trust about the character of God. And one of the most radical things that you and I can do with our faith is to fully believe with reckless abandon that God is abundantly good. When we place our faith in the benevolence of God's character, and that God's work in this world is to make all things good, then that faith changes you and me from the inside out. Rather than viewing people outside of our tradition with suspicion, we sit at their feet as they teach us about God. Rather than seeing racial injustice as a worldly inconvenience, We work toward racial equality knowing it will be the cornerstone of the kingdom of God. Rather than attempting to sit on the throne of God and declare who's in and who's out, we will humble ourselves and serve those who are in need. Rather than viewing a mask as an infringement on our rights, we will gladly wear a mask to participate in the betterment of health for ourselves and for each other. Rather than clinging to our fragile egos, we will learn to apologize, how to reconcile, and how to make amends with those we have wronged and those who have wronged us. My friends, I told a hypothetical story about my wife murdering our dog. I hope this story felt jarring to you. Many of you personally know my wife. And you know that how she acted in this story and in this thought experiment could not be further from the truth as to the actual person that is Kimmy. Imagine that 10 years down the road, someone told you this hypothetical story. But when they told you the hypothetical story, they believed it was an actual historical and accurate story. How would you respond to them telling you this story as truth? I think you might say, that's not the Kimmy I know. My hope is that by the end of this sermon, you will hear the story of God and Josiah and Hulda, And as the story concludes, you will have the courage and the clarity to respond to the story by saying, that's not the God I know. And rather than going down the road that says the Bible must always be true, you select the other road that adamantly believes that God always has been, God always will be, and God currently is always moral. And you will feel confident in those words and in that choice because you are a person of great faith. And people of great faith trust that God is always good. To my friends, may you trust that God is abundantly good. When you encounter stories of scripture that portray God as immoral, may you have the courage to say, it's not the God I know. And may you find that life is given to us by God as a gift that is meant to be enjoyed and savored as something that is good. And may you see and embrace the abundance of goodness that is Jesus Christ in all.